You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and our March to Glory, our quest to 300. This is episode 299. Yeah. And across the border from me on a mobile device is the man from Kentucky. (laughs) Yes. My good friend, my partner in crime and slime, Sammy. Yeah, we're doing a patchwork show this week because I'll be out of town uh, tomorrow. So, you know, going down to Nightmare City. He's going to an... uh, an undetermined European city. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm going to cover myself in mud, get a fanny pack. <laughs> meatball head, as uh, James McCormick said. Yeah, meatball head. Yeah, that one. <laughs> he does look like a meatball head. So outstanding. <laughs> outstanding. But uh, this week, in case you don't know what meatball head means, we are covering 1980s Umberto Lenzi bonkers zombie film, Nightmare City, a.k.a. Yes. Incubo sulla città contaminata. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's out of the or or also known as Hugo Bologna's third appearance in the last five weeks. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. And Mel Ferrer coming back, but we'll uh, we'll get to Mel and his check cashing. Uh, we're also doing a film from Eclipse's Nikatsu Noir set, uh, take aim at the police van. Not make or actually making his GGTMC debut is uh, a director that I think we're both uh, moderate fans of, probably. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll find out. That is Mr. Seijin Suzuki. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we we have two films from two countries that we probably would say are our favorites, uh, maybe outside of the good old U.S. of A. Certainly. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would say that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. So uh, with that being said. It's been a short turnaround. We're recording on a Thursday night. This is the first time ever that we've recorded on a Thursday night. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's, it's usually the most impossible day of the week for me. So, but the the scheduling gods were on our side. It's uh, good to be lucky. It's better to be sort lucky of. than good. <laughs> we're lucky and good, it seems, this evening. So we'll see how this goes. And let me make sure I. Ooh. Ooh, I was worried I wasn't hitting record. Ooh. 
been a disaster. We would have. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could have brought that pep on a take two. Well, I was gonna say we would have had to. You know, could we have brought the Ugo Bologna joke for the <laughs> for the third time? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it would have been as good a good a raw Bologna joke as it was <laughs> yeah. the first time around. <laughs> We're getting out of the rind of the Bologna. We, yeah. Uh, that's how it goes. Let me tell you, I, I, I know people like to listen to sometimes how we like to tell little personal stories. You know, when I was a kid, I loved bologna so much. I call it bologna, not bologna. Yeah, for sure. I loved Story. bologna so much that I would tear the rinds off of the deli bologna, right? After I ate the bologna sandwich, I would tear the rinds off, and I would actually put the, the plastic rind in my mouth and chew on it like tobacco. Nice. Yeah, and I would, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd play baseball and everything chewing on bologna rind. Oh, that's blue ribbon? <laughs> Yeah, it was good. I mean, that was awesome. I mean, I miss those days, and I still miss pickle bologna, but my wife won't let me have it in the house. So Yeah, bologna, um, it's not bad. I mean, I eat mortadella, which is like the Italian bologna. My yeah, wife likes yeah. to say it. She likes to front like it's not, but we know it is. <laughs> yes, we do. So, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, yeah. Um, actually, speaking of food, I got to tell you, I got to get you uh, on the Blendtec train because yeah. you know what I just did? What'd you do? I just made homemade ice cream in three minutes. Nice. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell me you made a bologna smoothie. Ooh, it been, <laughs> that would have been, ooh, mind the grit. That was the worst <laughs> thing about bologna is a little inexplicable yeah. piece of yeah. grit you'd get in every... Yeah, you know, and of take, course, you know, when I got older and I discovered what bologna really was, that's also the worst thing about it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the worst thing. Um, <laughs> although if you get thick-cut bologna, this is very much a regional joke, if you get thick-cut bologna... Um, they call it a Newfie steak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you can, sometimes you can go to you can go to an East Coast like a, uh, an East Coast or like a Newfie has a breakfast joint down here. You can ask from for a uh, Newfie steak and eggs for breakfast. Nice, nice. Yeah, we do the we do uh, down here in Kentucky. We do the fried bologna and eggs. It's pretty popular. Wicked. Well, I got to figure out, man. I'll tell you, Facebook made us install Messenger. Uh-huh. Phone, and now it's got this fucking chime, and it's popping, and we have whistles, and <laughs> four-piece string band, and it's terrible. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll make the most of it. But, uh, yeah, so what have you been watching in this? So I guess we recorded, what, three days ago, really? Yeah, just three days ago. I managed to squeeze one film in. I watched uh, Downloaded, the uh, documentary by Alex Winter for VH1 about Napster. So I watched that, and it was, it was good. It was good. What was it about? I learned uh, Napster, you know, the uh, the infamous file sharing. Oh, Napster. yes. Justin so, Timberlake. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was interesting. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And uh, it was pretty interesting stuff. It really was. Uh, it's worth a watch, I guarantee. I don't think I don't think it's, like, great, but I think it's definitely very informative and very interesting. So that's really all I watched. I've just been really kind of trying to cram the movies in. I'm trying to prep for episode 300 because we got a trilogy to cover next week. And. So I got to take films with me on my remote device. So, you know, I'm a busy, busy boy. Well, tell me I lost you already. You lost me to, um, <laughs> to Cheeto Crunchets. Oh, I'm a busy, busy Bologna. I am. I, I tell you, I got greedy there. I had two, and I got the vibe you were getting to the end of your sentence. I'm like, I'm going to roll the dice on three more. <laughs> Call up my, uh, my neon orange pants down. So to speak. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Cheeto dust pants. Man, I'll tell you, those, sometimes I get a hankering for those crunchies and, uh. I know, I know. Bad scene, man. Bad scene. You have a bellyache at 2 a.m. But, uh, <laughs> you wish I, I didn't eat so much, uh, 
Ugo Bologna. But, uh, you know, we're going to have fun with Ugo. It's just, he's got the kind of name that keeps on giving. Um, my week was light, very light. You know, I had to, had to get a gastronoscopy and help my mother move in and all sorts of fun stuff. So I uh, I did Curse the Were-Rabbit on a rewatch with some friends oh, yeah. over. You know, my kids are big Wallace and Gromit fans, much to my satisfaction. I didn't really push it on them. But on one of my nights, uh, I picked it uh, and they liked it so they wanted to watch it again and it's a good one man very oh yeah it's a great one it's a great one i, I love that one quite a bit yeah very fun stuff uh, a lot of good jokes a lot of in jokes for, for parents that that's how subversive adult humor is done well mm-hmm. it's yeah. not just you know, a buffet of, of uh, pop culture references a la family guy yeah. you know yes yeah. uh, all you can eat man but no it's good it's, it's a regular one and i did two that i'm pretty sure you've already seen they're both on instant Two thirty for thirty soccer stories. The first one was ceasefire massacre. Yeah, yeah, I saw that one. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one, man. It's it's short and it feels kind of a bit abrupt because of the subject matter, but yeah, uh, it should have been an hour. It really should have been. It it looks at. Uh, I remember that World Cup. That was the first World Cup I ever sort of watched in the World Cup. Um, Ninety four uh, in America and uh, Ireland upset Italy and um, you know there's some terrible tragedies that that fell on the same day and and yeah it just. Um, Directed by, I want to say, Alex Gibney. And um, it's very good, but yeah, it just feels very abrupt. And as we said, you could have stretched it out much longer. It's interesting how some people make good use of the time um, and others, you know, it it doesn't feel, it feels like there's stuff missing. Like the the one um, with Chile. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. That one, even though we'd said it could be longer, still felt kind of complete. Do you know what I mean? Even though we wanted more. Yeah. Whereas this one felt a bit kind of unresolved. Uh, it's kind of surprising coming from uh, coming from Gibney. It's kind of surprising because he usually makes he's very prolific and he tends to make pretty beefy documentaries. I mean, at least as far as length goes. So it's yeah. actually kind of surprising that he only did like the twenty two minutes on that one. Yeah. No, I know it is a bit peculiar, but it's still worth everyone's uh, time. It's, it was sad. There was there was the one moment when they they have a shot uh, where they show the. Uh, after effects of what happened and i just uh, yeah. you know, almost got a tear in my i got a tear in my eye it's, it was pretty terrible oh man wait till you watch hillsborough <laughs> i'm gonna watch that one soon but the thing with it was i was grilling i was grilling some sausages and i had to yeah you know i had to kind of run in and out so i just picked a couple of things that i knew while i was prepping i could uh, pump off yeah um and that leads into the next one i watched which was another one i watched the myth of garincha about the brazilian yeah. soccer player and his kind of star-crossed life yeah, Galincha. Yeah, it's a good one too. Um, this one, I think, you know, some of them, as we talked about sports documentaries, can kind of look at human interest or sport or um, the social tie-in with sports or cultural tie-in with sports. This one looks at a man who, you know, was illiterate, was an alcoholic, uh, was born with one knee on backwards, I think. Yeah, yeah. We, well, I don't know if it was backwards, but it definitely went the other way. Yeah, so okay. yeah. it was very, it was very bizarre. And they, they said that kind of lended, you know, kind of lended him that ability to kind of move and change position really quick because people were always looking at his legs and it looked like he was going one way when he was getting ready to go the other. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it was a good one. Again, I felt like we could have got more um, out of it. But I think there's a, these are – It's I applaud ESPN for having the foresight to see that soccer is really growing and to maybe kind of get some interest going amongst uh, – North American viewers, you know, and some of the history, yeah. the rich history of the sport, and yeah, so it's uh, it was good, and then uh, that was it. Other than the two films we did for the show, I expect DSPN will probably have a lot more 
30 for 30 or even just more films in general. You know, they did that SEC story. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. And they've done uh, these soccer stories. And, of course, they got the regular 30 for 30s. And I just watched, you know, Slaying the Badger last week, which is really, really good. And I, I expect these, you know, I, I still think some of the best films they're going to make in that series are still to come. I mean, there's still Agreed. a lot of great stories. I mean, you got, you know, centuries of sport history here. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of good stories still to be told. And I applaud them for taking an international approach. Yeah, We've seen yep. ones like you watched about the Tour de France. We've seen yeah. hockey. We've seen basketball. I mean, listen, because it's ESPN, naturally you are going to see maybe a little more basketball and football but uh, and baseball perhaps. But um, it's nice to see you know the global kind of sports stories. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's cool. So that's uh, that was our week, short weeks. Um, you know, that's the way... It rolls sometimes. Um, yeah. So I think we can probably get into our first review. Which uh, which film do you want to do first? Uh, I don't care. Which one you got a hankering for talking about first? <laughs> which one you got a Bologna for, huh? Well, I do have uh, um, ground beef all over my head, and I am wearing a, a, a turtleneck sweater. So Okay, well, then Nightmare City it is. Let's start with Nightmare City. And we yeah. would we would normally take this time to uh, say we'll be right back, but we're not going to be right back. We're going to keep on rolling. Yeah, Will's got to he's got to go to work tomorrow. I got to hit the road tomorrow. Like I say, Nightmare City. You know, I got to get the the car all padded up with some spikes. Get the blower on there. You know, get my Blue Shepherd Australian cattle dog. Got to head to the Nightmare City. Did Did you say get the Bologna on there? <laughs> yeah, well, I said the the Blue Shepherd cattle dog, but oh. I don't I think I, I think I should have said the Bologna. Yeah. Maybe missed an opportunity for a Bologna <laughs> joke there. There go we we got a two for one deal on the Bologna jokes. We're gonna be pulling them out hot and heavy this week. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, so yeah, uh, the first film we're gonna talk about is Nightmare City, which criminally uh, has a five point six on IMDb. I'll synopsize it. Uh, directed by a man whose name is familiar to everyone who listens to our show, whether it's through his horror endeavors or his Eurocrime films. Uh, <laughs> Umberto yeah. Lenzi. Yes. The, the Screamer. Film, yeah, man. The Screamer. He got a, he, this film uh, is on HD in, in Netflix. It is also on YouTube. And, of yes. course, Rero put out the blue for it recently. Mm-hmm. So good on them for putting on the blue. Um, to be completely impartial i've heard uh, the blue itself doesn't look very good and they've sourced a lot of stuff from the i want to say it was was it anchor bay i can't remember but i remember reading reviews of it as well which is why i kind of decided to pick it while it was streaming because i was going to save it up for maybe a diabolic pick but i didn't really um i didn't really want to you know waste that pick you still there i am i just i didn't want to interrupt you um, I'm sorry. I, I got a text while you. Sometimes when you when you're on Skype on your phone, you get a text. Sometimes it'll cut you out. It'll, you know, like. Uh, but I guess they've updated it where it doesn't do that anymore. So mm-hmm. thankfully it doesn't. So. No, it's good. But yeah, no, I, I was going to pick this as a as a blue choice, but uh, once I read the review of the blue, I was like, well, you know what? It's Nightmare City. I watched it a thousand times on VHS growing up. You know how much how much better can it look? And it probably looks just fine on the HD uh, streaming on Netflix, and I was correct about that. It actually looked pretty good. Yeah, it certainly looks um, sharper than, you know, saw VHS. <laughs> yeah, any version you've probably seen before, yes. <laughs> Precisely. Now, I do have the, again, I can't remember if it's Anchor Bay or, Syn- no, not Synapse. I can't remember who put it out, but Blue Underground, maybe? I don't know. 
Um, I do have the disc, but it's packed away in a box, so I had to roll with uh, the Netflix. So for those that don't know, this film's pretty – I'd say it's it's one of the more – when I say notorious, I don't mean because of any sort of uh, – not in the same realm as uh, Faces of Death or you know, Cannibal Holocaust, but just notorious in terms of it being kind of a, a bonkers film. It's It's well known. Yes. Um, so let's let's uh, let's synopsize this one. An airplane exposed to radiation lands, and blood-drinking zombies emerge, armed with knives, guns, and teeth. They go on a rampage, slicing, dicing, and biting their way across the Italian countryside. <clears throat> well, um, let's see who who uh, who who are you that synopsized this? Where do I see that? Because you get carded. You get a red card. They're not zombies, which we'll get into, and yes. it's not the it's not the Italian countryside. It's an undetermined European countryside. In fact, yeah, frankly, should. I think Mexico is doubling as Italy as as an undetermined European countryside. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Uh, we should say that uh, yeah, it's it's not exactly you know it, it's notoriously known as a zombie film, uh, but only really a zombie film maybe in spirit, not really so yes. much in actual execution. It's definitely. Uh, well, I'd say it's a precursor to your 28 Days Later type stuff, really, in a way. So yeah. maybe not disease so much, but, well, we, you know, radiation, at least. So <laughs> I feel like it, um, I call it a zombie movie for sort of a quick and dirty summary of it, but, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it's not a, a sort of pure zombie film. Um, did, I guess Watching I should... it again as an adult, and I'm going to let you, obviously, I'm going to let you lead because I picked it. Watching it again as an adult, and I missed an opportunity earlier for this joke. Really, it should be known also as Nightmare Titty, because there's a lot of tit violence. There's in, a lot uh, of titty movie. violence in this film. I, I don't know what it is with Italians. They fucking hate aerobics and dance. Yeah, and they hate nipples. They want to tear them off at any given opportunity, man. They want to cut them off, tear them off, bite them off. Yeah, of, they want to put fish hooks through them. Yeah. Like in, what is that, Ferox? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Lindsay's known for breast violence. I mean, he's he's she done it in a lot of films. With uh, Fulci is to eyeball violence. Yeah, yeah. He is to breast violence what Ugo Bologna is to the GGTMC right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right on. That's right on. Um, this I've, I, have, I have to confess, I've always found this uh, this cover that you see on IMDb very weak. Oh yeah, yeah. So, I like it, but uh, I've seen better. I just don't like the the creature on it. It looks like a, a witch from like a Japanese, like an like an anime. Yeah. Well, it just yeah. It's... I mean, the the alternative is to draw the meatball head, and I don't know if that would work either. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I guess they probably they they were good to go with. This looks very skeletal and gaunt, but um, yeah. that's the way it rolls. But this one, uh, yeah, you, we've kind of talked on the cat. Well, we really only we focus on Ugo. The man uh, who's sort of the Vinnie Johnson or, or Vernon Maxwell of the GGTMC uh, lately. Yeah. He plays Mr. Desmond. and um, But in addition, you know, we get headlining Hugo Stiglitz, who I think is making his GGTMC. Oh, come on now. I think you're right, actually. I don't think Stiglitz has ever been on our show. Yeah, I don't think he ever has. And, of course, most people would be familiar with Stiglitz. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, uh, certainly because uh, Tarantino homaged it um, in The Glorious Bastards. But the Hugo Stiglitz uh, is a Mexican actor who never met a film that he wouldn't make and a check he wouldn't he wouldn't cash. Um, still working. Still working. Still going. Yeah, he is. That's impressive. 230 credits. I <laughs> know. I mean, he doesn't say no very often. No. In 2013, he made a film called Instructions Not Included. 
<laughs> he played uh, Johnny Bravo. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Yeah, no kidding. I wonder what he looks like nowadays. I'm actually going to Google that. Yeah, I think I'm do- going to too. But um, we got uh, we got him uh, Hugo headlining as uh, as a uh, a news reporter, Dean Miller, uh, and of yeah. course uh, alongside him, Francisco Rabal, his major Warren Holmes. <laughs> Um, Ugo, we talked about, uh, Mel Ferrer adding the, the, you know, sort of big name American kind of, uh, you know, uh, recognition. But, uh, yeah, um, Hugo, the great thing about Hugo in all seriousness, he's kind of known for two things. He's known for being very wooden, which uh, he is, but I would say this is one of his more spirited efforts. Yes. Um, and he's also, he's known for his beard, certainly. And, yes. uh, he's known... But to me, one of the things I think that makes him so appealing to European filmmakers is the fact that he really can pass for anything. He can speak Spanish, so if your film's in Spanish, he can speak Spanish. He has a German name. He could pass for everything from Italian to American. I mean, you name it, he can pass for it. Yes, exactly. So that's I think, something- you, I think you bring up an interesting point. I think that's the reason why he gets so much work, because he really is kind of... Um, I mean, he, he, he can pass for just about any European or any, even, you know, with a, if he was dubbed, he could even pass for an American. I mean, he has no real, like, ethnic look. No, not at all. But he's just, yeah, it doesn't overplay anything. He's not overly blonde or overly olive-skinned. He's just, he can just kind of fit right into anything. Yeah. The problem with that is also, I think, a little bit of his curse, though, right? Because he's he is kind of so every man. He's almost every man to a fault. Yeah. No, for certain. And he's not someone that I think, um, he's not a, he's not an electrifying performer. He's no. not, he's never going to be in, in, uh, in line against, um, uh, Tomas Millian. No. no. Certainly. <laughs> no. So, you know, but that's just the way it rolls. Um, Cipriani does the score for this and it's a, it's a pretty, pretty recognizable and a pretty well-loved theme. Yeah, I like the theme a lot. It's a good one. There's times when some of the other music in the in the score is lifting from Dawn of the Dead, certainly. Yes. You know, <laughs> uh, but it's it's still you know it's an effective score. It's it's a good score. Chipian, I don't think gets to do as much lifting as I'd like him to do. Um, but it's uh, still we're gonna be talking. We're gonna be talking a lot about Cipriani over the next couple of weeks here. Yeah, we sure are. <laughs> we sure are. Now this a little bit of a spoiler alert. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, at this point, I'm just looking, 19, you were really at a point when um, Lindsay was entering what I like to think of as his fun phase, where he was making some fun films, you know, uh, well, he gets into Cannibal Ferox after this and Daughter of the Jungle, but he has Chichi Bomba, Iron Master, um, uh, Ghost House, oh, buzz off, uh, he does uh, Nightmare Beach, uh, Cop Target, you know, he he has a run there where he does a bunch of kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So and we maybe not some of his best stuff, but certainly no. some of his kind of most punchy and exploitive stuff is uh, kind of in that little early '80s period. I mean, he really kind of went out with a bang because I guess you know, and I think '91 was his last film, so he, yeah, he kind of made the most of the '80s. Yeah. yeah. Mean Tricks. Yeah, that's the one that Elofenzam hated, but I actually like it's the Napier uh, crime film. That's right. So, and I, we have to give credit where it's due. Uh, a lot of the supplemental material on this disc you can find on the, the DVD. Really great interview with, I want to say it's with Lindsay. I'm pretty sure it's with Lindsay, not in a writer. But um, 
that's where he clarifies that they're very much they're not zombies, but he had to kind of sell them as such because zombies yeah. were hot at the time, right? And the Italians wanted yeah. to make money, and he had to sell them as such. But full credit goes to Lindsay and company for making a film that, uh, despite being kind of in the thick of that zombie run, uh, has its cake and eats it too from the standpoint of um, making the zombies all bets are off; they can run. They can use guns, they can use knives, they can use anything they want, which, as you said, really is a precursor to kind of the rage, uh, raging kind of animal uh, that you get in uh, Danny Boyle's films, is, is 28 films. Yeah, I, I feel like Danny Boyle has seen Nightmare City, I really do, because some of the kinetic energy that Lindsay gets out of his zombie shots in this, his quote-unquote zombie shots, very much feel like some of the kinetic energy you get from the quote-unquote infected in uh, the 28 Days Later film. So I do, and, you know, Boyle being a kind of a student of cinema and a lover of all types of cinema, I'm sure he's seen Nightmare City. Yeah, I would bet he has too. I mean, he watches everything, like Scorsese and a lot of these guys, right? Yeah, I'm sure even Scorsese's seen Nightmare City. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. But the film looks at that. It's a it's a very forward-thinking way to make the zombies because I have to, have to say, zombies are great. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about... Before this oversaturation, right? Zombies were my favorite subgenre, but they just it became so oversaturated. But Lindsay's forward thinking enough to kind of take another spin and add a little bit of social commentary uh, into the film, which isn't his primary concern. He's not uh, a DeLeo or a Damiani, but right, <laughs> he right. is adding you know the whole slant of an eco or environmental threat. It really is the golden era of the zombie, though, from like 69 to about 84, yeah. I guess, was Day of the Dead. So And Return. Yeah. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah. Return of uh, the Living Dead. What was that, 85? 84, 85, and Day yeah, was so I guess maybe right yeah, 69 to 85, maybe. We'll just go with that, maybe, I think. Maybe. Or was Return 87? No, 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 no. It was definitely 84 or 85. Okay. Well, I mean, that was... That really was the golden era, and I would argue, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree, that Return was the last good zombie film for some time. Yeah, it probably was. I know I kind of, based on nostalgia, oh, 85 was Return, not 84. Uh, based on nostalgia, I kind of championed um, uh, Savini's Night, but my brother's seen it recently and said it doesn't hold up very well. Yeah, you know, I, I remember watching that and actually enjoying that as well, but uh, I'd like to revisit that sometime. Maybe we'll... Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll do some dead pictures sometime. That's a that's a you know a pivotal big genre thing that we've always held out on. But we're 300 episodes in. Maybe sometime we'll celebrate some some Romero and some dead. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. Another one I I, I don't have high hopes for, but I, I quite like, again as a kid is Video Dead. Yeah. You know, yeah. as it's uh, kind of a, a pretty memorable um, cover and what have you. Pretty pretty wonky great, premise. Great title, yeah. Video day, yeah, it really captures that moment, right? Um, but uh, the what's great too about this, you know, with the Italian films is the, when the Italians made genre pictures, they cast, and I just realized this now, as obvious as it may have been, is Italians always cast adults, whereas when you get into the American films of the '80s and the late '70s with Cunningham and what have you. They tended to cast teenagers. Yeah. Well, I mean, which wasn't from a business standpoint was a relatively smart move because it was teenagers that mostly loved horror films. But it's mm -hmm. nice to see adults running around with too many baby face people, and we get uh, we get Hugo really trying to to outdo Silva in the trench coat. 
Yeah, yeah. I like him. He's got the Inspector Gadget look going. He's got it tied and yeah, and everything. The only thing he's missing is a hat. Yeah, it's true. He's not going to cover that stigless uh, quaff. No, definitely not. He's got some hair, man. (laughs) But it's uh, until we see this film with the ooh. Holy porky pig. With this film, the military industry and uh, kind of playing God and what have you. And what year was Day? I want to say, wasn't Day like 85 or 83? I thought it was was 84. Let's see. 85. 85. Wow. But anyway. So I guess we can say that 85 was the the kind of end of that first kind of golden era of the zombie then. We can definitely say that. Yeah, we definitely can. Because Day holds up extremely well. Yeah, I think Day got shit on when it came out, and I think it holds up extremely well. It's a good film. Some of the characters are very uh, cartoonish, black and oh, white. Oh, yeah, yeah. But as far as special effects and I think a, a logical conclusion to the, the trilogy, I'm not, I don't want to talk of land and diary and all that. <laughs> and survival. <laughs> survival. Yeah, I, I never saw it. Actually, no, you know what? No, hang on. Forgive me. Land I actually like. Yeah, no, land is good. Land's land good. Is, uh, is, a, is a very respectable entry into the genre. And I like some things about Diary. Uh, survival's, survival's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Pretty bad. That's what I heard. <clears throat> it does have a zombie on a horse, though, and that is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Tombs of the Blind Dead, man. Yeah, yeah. That's the, well, I mean, that's what I always tell people when they say, hey, man, I'm going to watch Tombs of the Blind Dead. I'm like, great, have fun. You'll like the one scene <laughs> where the, the uh, you know, Knights Templar are on the beach with yeah. the horses and their blind horses and the dead. It looks amazing, but there's going to be a lot of time in between. Oh, where you're, dude. I can't get behind those. It's like werewolves on wheels. There's one werewolf on two wheels for 30 seconds. Yep, exactly. Just, just the way it rolls. Um, but yeah, we talked about yeah the, the running, the aggression, which I think really lends itself well to peril. It, because mm-hmm. I think when you get the slow zombies, it's a different setup. You, you, the way you execute how you go from scene to scene and location to location has to change when people are actually having to run. And it's not a matter of, okay, I can just kind of shimmy through a crowd of stumbling zombies. So, you know, they really have to, they really have to make that work and right. pretty resourceful. But, um, man, yeah, because when that plane opens up at the beginning, it just, it has its foot on the gas. There's mm-hmm. zombies with Uzis, with mops, hatchets. Yeah. There's a zombie <laughs> that goes around garroting everyone, one who has a sledgehammer, one who elegantly cuts throats. <laughs> yeah, I love the slow motion, the, the like normal speed slow motion throat cutting. Yeah, he loves what's going it, on. It's pretty amazing, you know. Of course, they get probably got the the tube of blood on the other side yeah. of the fake blade, right? So he's got to just yeah, he's got to press it. He's, I he's, love he's, it too. I love the opening as well. I love when that plane opens. Up. Yeah, I love when that plane opens up and that doctor comes up because what I love so much about that doctor is we. I don't think you ever see him again. No, you don't. <laughs> I don't think you do at all. He's he's like he's he's, he's easily the heavy of the film. Really? Yeah. And you only see him in that one shot, it seems like. And then he just kind of scampers off. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he kind of gets some baby powder in his beard and his hair, and he just kind of <laughs> stumbles off, and that's it. He's done. It's uh, it's interesting. But, yeah, there's just so much mayhem in the early portion of the film. An arm gets taken off. and It's funny to watch an Italian horror film of this time because they always seem to favor really unorthodox camera angles. Yeah, yeah. There, we, you know, we've talked about a lot of Italian cinema, and even our good friend Rupert's talked about some of the issues he has with Italian cinema. And one of the great things about Italian cinema, especially of the late '60s into the '80s, is 
these guys with their odd i mean i think a lot of what we see now in cinema is influenced you know a lot of these guys these video store clerks that grew up watching movies and blah 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 you know you see all these kind of odd and obtuse angles that italian cinema's always used and it is there's something so uniquely italian exploitation about the way they shoot movies not just the cheap and and all the effects and all the things we know and love about italian movies but even what you say, even down to the composition of a shot, yep. there's just something about that era of Italian cinema that I just don't think will ever be repeated. No, it can't. But you can watch something and you can just really know that it's Italian. Mm-hmm. It's so apparent that it's Italian, like the aerobic scenes. They're so obviously Italian. <laughs> It's all music is the name of that show. I love that. Oh, I love it. Because so <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, it's all music. It's clearly not all music. No, it's, it's, it's clearly not all music. <laughs> it looks like it's all aerobics. It's all aerobics. It's, yeah. It's all it's all awkward close-ups. <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. But yeah, it's so crazy. Italians hate aerobics and dance. <laughs> Whether it's Suspiria with the ballet school or this with aerobics or... Um, uh, the one I watched uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, thing, um, Giallo a Disco. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's all it's all uh, all over the map, but they fucking hate any sort of body movement. Um, I don't know who it was Cipriani employed to play the sax, but that guy really goes for it during the aerobics number. He does. He, he really, really does. He's really blowing that sax. It's outstanding. Um, did you hear the one girl in the aerobic scene near the end of the first aerobic scene where, you know, the end of the world's coming and she laments not having her close up. It's gotta be the worst New Jersey accent. (laughs) It's like Popeye doing a New Jersey accent, but it's a woman. It's pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the kind of, isn't she the kind of reddish heroine? Yeah, I think so. Because she gets most of the lines that kind of redhead. So she must've been the best actor of the four or five of them, but. Uh, she gets all the lines and stuff, and she's clearly not the best looking of no, the group either. She's not. I love that one feather-haired uh, chick that interrupts the news bulletin. Yeah, yeah. We need more. Yeah, Stiglitz gets uh, he gets slammed down. He gets cut off. Yeah, he does, man. She's not down with the Hugo. I'm feeling it, but uh, are you playing some uh, some craps over there, man? Oh, can you hear that? Can you hear Yahtzee that? Yahtzee here. Is it a yeah, I, got some, a I, I keep some dice uh, near my desk sometimes, <laughs> and uh, sometimes just throw them for fun. <laughs> Amazing, man! Amazing. <laughs> I didn't think you could hear it, so I'm gonna uh, stop doing that now. It's right, eighty sided die. <laughs> <laughs> it's a twenty sided die. Which which response am I gonna give on the Ugo Bologna? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I just lost twenty hit points. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, but yeah, the aerobics massacre is great. Um, there's so many old men, like violently tearing at young women. It, Lindsay really likes that. He loves uh, young women being yes. molested by, uh, like, when I say young, I mean like adult women, but like you know, twenties and old yes. dudes just making out or or kind of just getting pawed at heavily or aggressively. <laughs> Lindsay is well. One of my notes says a Lindsay zombie is a perverted zombie, but most of yeah. Lindsay's violence toward women is slightly, well, it's not slightly, it's it's heavily misogynistic, but yeah. it is slightly perverted as well. There's just something about his violence toward women that I feel is a little too kind of, maybe a little too salacious, a little yeah. too, like he gets into it just a little, maybe just a little, a little bit too, too much. much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I would agree with that. 
I mean, there's just so much. I think every female character in here suffers breast mutilation. They do. I think they do. And it's it's crazy because both films this week have breast mutilation. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I never would have thought that. <laughs> well, we, you know, he has, at the end of his run, Lindsay had mean tricks. Uh, at, towards episode 300 of our run, we have this trick of breast mutilation becoming a thing. So, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um I don't know, this is a bit of a deep cut, but for some reason, the zombie that I always found impossibly <laughs> ridiculous in uh, in Dawn, and he always gets the close-up, that always makes me laugh, is the Harry Krishna zombie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a dude in this that looks like the yuppie version of the Harry Krishna zombie. <laughs> and I fucking laughed my ass off when I saw it. He's got like a sweater on and like a button-up collar and stuff, but... And I love, too, that every victim in this and every zombie gets a close-up with their eyes just so wide. Yeah. Everyone. It's uh, it's fantastic. And another thing, too, that this is what made me realize it was shot in Mexico. And I'm going to look like a fool if I get on here and it says it was shot in, like, uh, Berlin or something. But it clearly wasn't. There's palm trees. Um, but the palm trees and the beetles. In Mexico, yeah. there are so many beetles. Yeah. I know when I was uh, in Acapulco, all the taxi drivers drove uh, beetles. Yeah. Let me just, I'm gonna yeah. try to find I don't know, maybe out. it's a cheap car, I guess. Well, they would soup them up too, man. It was, it was pretty good. Let me see where this is. Yeah, Mexico. Um, ooh, this came out a day before my uh, my third birthday, November 18, 1983. How about that? Nice. Um, man, I'll tell you what, such minutia, but there's a... I'll just say three words, four words, dot fanny pack zombie. <laughs> I've never yeah. seen a zombie with a fanny pack. No, that's a first. And maybe a last. I don't know if there is any more. I'd have to go through the the whole ouvert or whatever you want to say to, to find that out. The yeah. ouvert, ouvert hors d'oeuvre. Yeah, the hors d'oeuvres. Uh, with Bologna. With the Bologna. And I'd have to go through all of that to find out. But uh, maybe, maybe in the 80s there may have been one. Maybe there was a workout zombie. Yeah, there might be. But I, but and that what's great about the fanny pack zombie is he's another one that's very graceful. Yes, very graceful. Um, the one woman in the film that's in the farmhouse looks like the love child, and this is a bit of a crash together. But I really felt like she she looked like these two, <laughs> the love child of Isabella Gianni and Eliana Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. She was all right though. Uh, yeah. We get David Hevener, MD. Yeah. He says, hold your socks on. <laughs> no, he's down for it. Um, yeah, so, so many mud-faced, burly, bad sweater-wearing zombies. And it just, they have a lot of energy. And that's one of the great things about the film is how much mayhem and energy there is from pretty much from the word go for 90 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that it's great that they, uh, they love to wipe their mouths so much. Yeah. I, I think... That's what I love so much about Nightmare City. I don't think it's a great film. We've we've talked about this. Nightmare City's come up a lot on our show about how much we like it, but we know oh, yeah. what it is. And uh, if you go back through the whole 300 episodes plus that we've done, I'm sure there's probably 20 episodes where we mention Nightmare City. Yeah. But I think the great thing about it is that it mixes this infected zombie, vampire, weapons, horror slants, end of world scenario it just it, it mixes all of these it's like it's like a melting pot of italian exploitation the only thing they're missing is their apocalyptic cinema in there really <laughs> yes 
Because there's even some GLOS moments of uh, these guys behind curtains. Oh, yeah, totally there are. Yeah, so it's got like every like Italian like little subgenre in there, except the kind of the apocalypse thing. But that I mean that is kind of there in spirit. But of course nobody's wearing the crazy clothes now. If Stiglitz would have been looking like uh, Sopkich or whatever. That would have been amazing. But that would have been amazing. <laughs> I wish uh, yeah, that would have been good, man. Stiglitz in like a fishnet shirt oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with like a leather armband on. Yeah. With like a uh, faux like a faux beard on the mesh shirt, like on his like a like a beard shirt, you know, to go with amazing. his beard face. <laughs> have been amazing. I love that the one priest we get in this, he gets mash up. Like they just yeah. Stiglitz just lays him out with a candle. It's yeah. uh, it's good, man. That girl, she doesn't she doesn't she that shakes her up, man. Yeah, it shakes yeah. her up. She starts to melt. And uh, then we kind of get to where's it back in the finale. I hate Zombieland for ripping the finale of this film off and yeah. never giving it its due. I hate yeah. Zombieland. I think to me that's that is like the 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 jumping of the shark. Where I don't like to be territorial and think it's mine and indie and you know I, I think it's a good thing when we get to a degree when we get things that we love from horror being more available for the masses because it means a lot of the other stuff will get attention and more money drawn to it from the stuff that we really like it trickles downwards. But I feel like Zombieland was a film when it kind of crossed over into the mainstream for good. And I really don't like that film. I really didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of issues with it as well. Um, and they did another thing, you know, you bring that up. I just feels like, you know, one of those situations where that director, he may have seen nightmare city, but he's not paying the right kind of respect to nightmare. Or, or, or being like honest about it. Like it's a yeah. deep cut. It's people like us are going to know. It. It's like, you know, it, come on, man. Like, I thought it was a shitty, you know, a shitty um, thing for them to not, you know, give it its due. But, you know, but this finale is fantastic. Oh, this finale is great. It's amazing. There's so much, like, Lindsay saved all the squib budget for the back of the film. Yeah. <laughs> and he saved, it, saved his dummy budget. Dude, this has one of the best <laughs> dummy dummy budgets. Dummy Easily. budgets. Dummy deaths. <laughs> Easily, yes, easily one of the best dummy deaths, if not the best dummy yeah. death in Italian cinema. It is amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> there's grenades. There's like roller coasters with um, Stiglitz doing the Kareem skyhook, lobbing grenades down onto zombies. Yeah. Uh, there's a helicopter with a ropey ladder. Um, That's not even a ladder. That's just a rope with knots tied in it. I was kind of blown <laughs> yeah. away by that. It's like a Boy Scout uh, thing. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, and, it's wild. You know, man. they're yelling, hold on. I'm sitting there thinking, fuck, man, that's a bad deal. That is a bad deal, man. And then, of course, we find out that the nightmare becomes a reality. Oh, man, I love it. One of the it. great closing shots. <laughs> yeah, it is fantastic. It really is. I mean, because it's – not a lot of Italian cinema did that. And I, I always – I always, you know, Fabian kind of brought up what he thought of this film and its ending and stuff on the on the group and – I've always loved the finale of this film. Uh, I like the hospital sequences too. Uh, yeah, they're good. It gets to the hospital. Uh, it gets a little bit more horror-like, but I do really enjoy the. I'm with you. The finale of this thing is is pretty great. It's like he saves. He he, he builds this film correctly. That's what Lindsay does. There's a little bit of lull in the middle, and some some extensive dialogue scenes. I think that aren't necessary. Um, some weird dialogue choices too, like there's sounds of that dog barking and I can't see it. I'm like, 
Well, yeah, because you hear the dog. You don't see it, dumbass. I don't know what he's talking about. But <laughs> the uh, There's just some weird moments. And that, some of the scenes with the generals, uh, from Mel Ferrer and stuff underneath, underground. That stuff's a bit dry. Yeah, that stuff's really dry. Because, I mean, they there's a lot of moments where they're just kind of standing there. It's like a lot of dead time and stuff. And this film's not long. It's only like 92 90, minutes long. Yeah. So, so it's kind of amazing that it uh, it kind of drags in spots. But the ups of this film, I guess the best way to put it for me is the ups in this film outweigh the downs. So I, I, I've always, I've always just enjoyed it. The sleaziness of it. I mean, Lindsay's one of my favorite Italian directors because he was always one of those guys who, you know, he worked in every genre they ripped on and mm-hmm. he, every did he make genre. The post-apocalyptic that, film? Uh, I think he did. Yeah. I'd have to look through and see, I know but, uh, every genre he worked in, there's a semi-good to really good ripoff that he did. Yeah. I'm uh, looking right now to see. Um, maybe he didn't. Maybe that might be the one he didn't do. Yeah, he did a giallo. He did spaghetti westerns. He did Euro spy films. Yep. He did adventure films. He did Euro crime. I don't see any really post-apocalyptic stuff in here. He did zombies. He did cannibals. He did jungle films. He did Conan ripoffs. <laughs> he did uh, like cop film, black you know, black cobra films, ghost films. I always wanted to see his film. Uh, it's called Wild Team. It's it's uh, Antonio Sabato and Ivan Razumov. It's uh, uh, like a South American uh, rebel kind of like I've never seen the film, but I've always wanted to see it. Wild when, Team. Yeah, Wild Team. It's uh, Antonio Sabato and Ivan Rezabov, and it's kind of like a uh, South American, kind of like drug dictator type film. Oh, wow. We should definitely look into that. I love Ivan Rezabov. He's got a great look, and then, uh, of course, we both love the Sabato, so yeah. that would be fun to do. Yeah, so maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that's the only genre he didn't really get into. That's crazy. It's too bad. It's too bad it he didn't. It is too bad. Yeah, because he even did an Indiana Jones ripoff. He did Hunt for the Golden Scorpion. Yeah. When they were doing those Indiana Jones ripoffs, which are kind of fun. So, yeah, he's... He's pretty much done everything, I guess, except post-apocalypse. I, I, you know what? If, you, if you'd have told me to bet on that, I would have said he did. Well, you would think because all of them did, right? Yeah, just about all of them did. I mean, Martino did. Uh, just about everybody else did. Argento so I, pretty I, much is always horror, so. Yeah. But excluding yeah. him, like, you know, your Diodatos and. Well, he kind of stands out in way. He's kind of a different. Out of all those Italian filmmakers from the 70s and, and 80s and late 60s and stuff, Argento kind of always stood out. Mm-hmm. As a different type of filmmaker to me, anyway, because yeah. he never really had that that kind of quick and dirty that the other guys would uh, no. kind of put together, you know. No, definitely not. Yeah. So, if there's anything I can really say about Argento that I've always admired is that he really kind of just stuck to his guns, maybe to a, maybe to his own detriment, really. Yeah. But uh, you know, you know, he got what he got out of that and stuff, and. Maybe he's considered, I think now though, you're seeing a lot of these guys like Lindsay Martino, you know, with the advent of podcast and the internet, I think you're starting to see more and more that these guys are getting the respect that they should have deserved instead of being these quote unquote hacks. Uh, when Argento was considered a, a kind of a great filmmaker, you know, Martino was considered a, a hack and Lindsay was considered kind of a hack. You know, these guys were kind of, you know, just Castellari, these guys were all considered as kind of, you know, second rate filmmakers, right? So. But yeah, I love that it's come around and people like us have been able, not, not to toot our own horn, but just speaking how much we love it, we have the opportunity to have a voice to proclaim our love for these guys and to look at them critically and seriously and not just look at the ridiculous notion of their filmmaking, but 
the craft and the dedication and the consistency and in, in quality and if not quality, the consistency in entertainment. Yes, exactly. Well, look at uh, I never knew this uh, eyeball, which is okay film of Lenzi's. Got a great uh, AKA that I never knew about: Red Cats in a Glass Maze. <laughs> That's a great title. It's a great title. Wasn't it uh, Lindsay? Did Lindsay do Knife of Ice? Was he the yeah. one who did that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought he did. I always, always love that title. I always mix that up with the Jalo that um, that Deleo did. Cold Eyes of No, not Cold Eyes of Fear. What's the one he did with uh, with Kinski? Slaughter Hotel. For some reason, I always mix up Knife of Ice and Slaughter Hotel. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, but I don't have a lot more to add. I mean, I just, I know we'll be talking a lot more Lindsay. I mean, the guy directed oh, 65 yeah. films, and I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up covering 30 of them. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we covered a few, but, I mean, he really kind of is a, you know, if there's a, um, you know, Mount Rushmore of directors, really, maybe not just four, but many directors, uh, Lindsay is certainly in that Italian wing, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Because 100%, he's, uh, man. He's one of the special ones, so was, yeah, it was great. It was great to revisit this. Although, I, like I said, you ro- go back and watch it now with a critical eye. It really is a, it is a total mess, but it's a, it's a fun mess. It is. It's a rompy, fun film, and uh, yeah, what uh, I guess I get my make or breaks and all that. Yep. So there's a lot of fun scenes. The opening really sets the tone. Um, the only scene that that I couldn't pick would be the Mel Ferrer boardroom military <laughs> scenes. But, yeah. uh, Some but, of the scenes with uh, Stiglitz on the phone, too. He's on the phone a lot in this film. So Yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. And I'll tell you, he never takes off his uh, his blazer with like the leather elbow pads, man. No, no, no. He's rocking that. That's crazy. But uh, um, 20 more XP. Um, <laughs> yeah, you hear that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it's got to be the finale, man. Like, it's so inspired for its time. It's a fucking zombie... Well, again, just quick and dirty. It's a zombie film finale at a theme park with, like, automatic weapons and grenades and amazing dummy deaths. It's uh, it's really fantastic. Um, MVT is that energy. It has an energy... You know, a lot of times it felt like some of the films at the time, the zombie, the um, cannibal films and what have you, that were starting to really tip the scales and people were getting out of zombie films. Um, they were kind of a bit of a slog and just they like to kind of wallow in the the muck and, and the kind of repulsion a little bit. But this one's just fun and rompy and sleazy. And, uh, eight hours, only eight hours. My uh, my score is uh, 7.5 out of 10. It's It's a film I will own in every format, provided that... Any given disc doesn't shit the bed. It's it's such a great uh, such a great film. Yes, yes. Uh, we're pretty much in agreement. My make or break is also the ending. Uh, I think we both love this film for the same reasons, uh, and we both feel about it the same way, like equally, like maybe the most equal of any films we've seen together, or watched, or talked about. Uh, who'd, who'd you say your MVT was again? Just the energy of it. Yeah, I went with the score. I, I kind of like Cipriani's score in this. I really do. I kind of. I like the feel of it. Oh, it's stuff. a good one. Yeah, and it's, it's not a whole lot of stuff, but it's you know he was always. If Lindsay's considered you know kind of cool now, it's it's nice that uh, Cipriani's kind of uh, remembered more fondly now because I think he was always kind of overlooked by the big guys, you know. Um, which oh, again, sure. we'll talk about more of that, I'm sure, soon. But I mean, he was definitely. Would you say maybe the most underrated of the 
Italian composers, maybe? Yeah, I would say so. I think he might might have been. Um, but yeah, my score is the same as yours. Uh, well, I think it is. I, I think you said 7.25 because that's what I gave it. I said 7.5. No, 7.25. So we're right around the same. I'll go 7.5. What the hell? I agree with you. It's too much fun not to go 7.5. It's the kind of fun you have a smile on your face. You're going to show your friends. You can put it on a party. You could watch it by yourself and still have fun. It's a fun film. I bet I, I, bet I rented this film 50 times. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's up. a great one, man. Yeah. had the big box, the big box VHS when I was uh, a kid. And it was called, uh, what was it called? It was called City, City of the Walking Dead. Yeah, that's right. And I used to mix yeah. it up with City of the Living Dead. Yeah, and I would rent, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I would always remember that the Living Dead was a little bit more boring than the Walking Dead. <laughs> Which is ironic that they call it City of the Walking Dead. <laughs> no, I know. So, but I would always rent it under the title City of the Walking Dead. Man, I still wish I had that uh, that VHS. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. So I guess we can take a break now. We can. We are going to take a break, and we're going to come back with some uh, some Dungeons and Dragons. And yeah, I'm gonna roll it. Here it goes. Hey, oh, whoa, hey. Nice. Plus 20 dexterity to the Bologna. <laughs> my dex, my Bologna always has dexterity. Nice. We, uh, we'll be right back. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from the Projection Booth. And, you know, I want to tell you about a guy, kind of humble guy, I guess, my podcast partner. That's right, he has a new book out. His name's Mike White, and it's called Cinema Detours. The guy's so humble, he won't even bring it up on the show. I don't know what that's all about, but anyway... Just want to say, Cinema Detours got a chance to take a look at it, read through it, and it's kind of fun. I mean, you have these reviews for movies that you've probably seen before, and it's like chatting with an old friend. And then there's the movies that you haven't seen, which you got to add to your list and hopefully you get to see before you die. Thanks a lot, Mike, for telling me about all these movies that i got to see now. But really, ultimately, why I'm coming to you about why you should pick up Cinema Detours either at Amazon.com or for your Kindle, or you can go over to projection-booth.com and pick it up as well, is because, you see, Mike's wife told me to do this. You might not know this, but Mike has 37 children, and he needs the money in order to take care of them. 37 kids, can you imagine? So Cinema Detours, projection-booth.com. You can always get it at Amazon, either in paper form or for your Kindle. So check it out. It's Mike White, Cinema Detours, and uh, now I know why I don't get paid for this podcast.
So it's in like a well, like a non-oiled machine at times, licking Cheeto dust yeah. off our fingers and yeah, rolling dice. Die. Yeah. yeah, we're ready to go. Um, all right, so uh, sounds next like that uh, sounds like heaven though. Talking genre cinema, eating Cheetos, and rolling twenty-sided die. That is a, that is a good evening by any measure. <laughs> yes, any measure. I was gonna make a piggish joke, but I will refrain. This is the gentleman's yeah. guide. I'll save that for <laughs> yeah. the tub. Yep. <laughs> uh, ooh, I just saw a film called Heat Haze Theater from 1981. Nice. That's, uh... Definitely got to look into that wild team. Yeah, absolutely. Heat Haze Theater, fantastic. Uh, but our next film is, uh, well, it's a Seijin Suzuki film. Uh, our next film is from the Nikatsu Noir Eclipse set, uh, set that I own. A couple of films I'd seen. Uh, this was one that, uh, I uh, had wanted to see for some time. I'd only ever seen the opening, and also synopsized it here, and Sammy can get into it. Uh, Taking him with the policeman, 1960, again directed by Seijin Suzuki. A sharpshooter kills two prisoners in a police van at night. The guard in the van is suspended for six months. He's Timon, an upright, modest man. He begins his own investigation into. <laughs> The murders. Who were the victims? Who are the relatives and girlfriends? Who else was on the van that night? As he doggedly investigates, others die. Coincidences occur, and several. <laughs> I'll do it and so. And several leads take him to the amateur agency, which may be supplying call girls, its owners in jail, his daughter. Oh, this just goes on and on. And who is Akiba? Yeah. Jay Haley at Hotmail. Yeah, this thing, uh, this thing, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty much the whole film. It's only 78 minutes long, for Christ's sake. Yeah, that was 74. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah, that, this is one I had not seen. Uh, like I said, you had not seen either. Uh, I'd read some good things about it. I always liked the title. The title's really kind of very cool. Fantastic kind of title. says a lot. Yeah, it, says, it kind of says a lot without, you know, given away really because the film i mean that's really kind of like just the precursor and kind of like the setup of the kind of uh the narrative hook uh, kind of opening for the whole thing because uh, really after that what you really get is another gentleman in a trench coat <laughs> <laughs> running around uh, a town looking to figure things out and uh, in this case it's uh, i think it's a uh, mikitaro misushima i think is how you say yeah lomo from uh, cub uh, an actor who works yeah that's the only thing I remember him from, like, right offhand, but I know he did other stuff, and I know I've seen his face in other stuff. Worked with Suzuki a few times, I know that. Other than that, I would be lying if I said I was overly familiar with... Uh, I'm not. Work. Yeah, I'm not, for sure. I mean, I know some Japanese cinema, but I'm looking through his filmography right now, and I'm Man, not. he started working in 1925. Yeah, I mean, he, he, wow. he, he was, uh, I think he was born, like, in, like, 19... 19- 12 or something? Yeah, 1912. Yeah, 1912. <laughs> Lived to 1999. So he had a nice 
long life. Um, there's some other actors in here I kind of recognize, but I'm not going to be a fool and try to say that I know him from something without the benefit of the MDBA, so I'm not going to do that. But needless to say, I think the, one of the strengths of this movie is the cast and its faces. This has got really good faces in it. But, mm-hmm. And uh, it, I like the way it opens. And one of my notes is... Many accidents have occurred in this area. Caution. It is a really great opening, and that's all I'd ever seen. Suzuki's a filmmaker, right? Full disclosure, I've always been very lukewarm on. Um, despite being a sucker for aesthetics, I've always found his films that have left me a bit cold. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does some things that... I'm with you on that, because he does some things stylistically that are interesting. Mm-hmm. But he also can be incredibly flat sometimes. Yeah, and that's that's a perfect word to to describe how I feel his films are. I feel like a lot of his films are flat. They're not very propulsive. I don't feel like there's ever a build to kind of a feverish pitch. He doesn't, you know, for some reason they they, they do feel very flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've seen I've seen a few of his films. I've seen Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill, of course, and I've seen. A couple others, uh, Youth of the Beast, and mm-hmm. I think there was, I can't remember the name of the other one I saw, but I never went back this far. None of his stuff I've seen is good. This is the oldest film of his I've seen, I believe. He started working in 56, and so this was uh, then. I've seen, uh, ooh, I've always wanted to see The Man with the Hollow Tip Bullets. I know that title, but I've never seen it. So Great title, yeah. I've always wanted to see Underworld Beauty. I've seen a handful of his films. Of those sort of like the ones you'd said exactly. Those are the films that got releases. Yeah. That when I was first getting into his films were the most accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of people or some people like Gate of Flesh, but I've never seen that. So yeah, great, great title as well. But a lot of his, I mean, a lot of his stuff has great titles and it's interesting stuff. But I mean, he is a filmmaker that I think you. You love to love him, or you're just kind of lukewarm on him. I don't think you can ever deny that there's something there, but he is. Uh, it's interesting that we both kind of feel the same way about the films we chose this week. Because, well, I don't know about the film, but I mean the directors in some ways too. Because I also have some issues with Suzuki. Like I don't consider mm-hmm. him a master, so to speak, but I consider no. him a very competent filmmaker. I would agree with that. And there's some that do consider him a master. Criterion thinks enough of him to have a lot of his mm-hmm. films featured prominently on their their label. Yeah. And his films look fantastic on blue. I had the chance to revisit um, Tokyo Drifter, which again, because um, Tokyo Drifter and Brandon Decay were the first two I'd ever seen of his. I just, again, I found, despite them being visually very beautiful, they they felt like, and this is kind of ironic, considering we're talking about Italian film in the show too, his, his uh, Yakuza films or crime films were comparable to me to Bava's Giallo, or jolly mm. output in that they're beautiful to look at, but they're a little too clean and flat for me. Mm. Okay, that's, that's a good analogy. I can take that. That sounds about right to me. I mean, what I've seen, like I, I think I've seen maybe like one or two less than you have, but what I've seen is, because I feel the same way about Drifter and Branded to Kill, two very well-known films from him. I feel the same way that people really like them, but I don't know what all the fuss is about. But I mean, I can understand why people like them. I just, just for me, it doesn't really, you know, get to that, that level of like a, you know, a Kurosawa or somebody like that. Or even an Argento or someone. Mm-hmm. Or even Fukusaku or just yeah, anybody like that. can't lace so. up uh, Fukusaku <laughs> shorts, man. Yeah. So uh, we get some very, uh, this both films this week, very interesting thing. Both films this week are like, they're like jet fuel. Both films are so propulsive. 
they just they just want to go. I mean, this film starts out with a bang and just kind of just keeps going. And it really is. I mean, they really kind of cover like a lot of this area of Japan, wherever they're at, because uh, there's a lot of scenes where they just kind of mix and match. And it feels like a low budget film kind of shot like a TV show in a way, like they find a set, they shoot a scene, they move to another mm-hmm. set, they shoot a scene. And uh, there's a lot of that stuff because they don't really revisit sets too much that I remember in this film. It kind of just kind of like keeps moving forward. Man, they revisit like his yeah. They revisit his apartment like once, and uh, with his little cap guns and stuff. And they revisit uh, I should say Timon, the lead. Uh, that's his apartment, and he's got like a hobby where he likes to play with uh, like toy guns and uh, cat pistols and things. And um, I think they revisit the police station a couple of times, but that, that's really that's really it. They don't really revisit anything. I mean, the train maybe, but anyway, we kind of start out with our, uh, character. We kind of see that he's just kind of a special kind of prison guard. He's kind of tight with one of the guys on the, on the bus, on the van, the quote unquote police van, uh, Goro, but we hear Goro's name almost as much as we hear Akiba. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you hear Goro and Akiba quite a bit in this uh, film. Uh, but you know, it's interesting because Goro's writing Akiba in, in Japanese on the, uh, on the kind of foggy window that I like that setup because, you know, he kind of sees it and, and he sees the female. So you kind of, it's almost like he's yelling away cause he kind of got all this setup in the beginning that he kind of refers back to oh, definitely. Uh, later to kind of unsolve, to kind of solve this mystery that he's kind of got himself caught up into. And I tell you what, there's a guy that takes a punch to the face in this film <laughs> that is, well, there's no doubt about it. It's convincing cause he really took the hit. <laughs> Man, he oh, yeah. really gets popped in the face. I mean, I'd, I'd be pissed off if somebody hit me that hard in the face. Well, that's like in Nightmare City. Someone gets gun-butted in the chin. It's like, man, that guy took a bump. I know. This guy really takes a hit, falls down on the thing. I mean, uh, on the chair, he really... Uh, oh, there's yeah. Some, there's some recklessness in this film, I feel, because like Goro, at one point, he falls in front of a moving car, and that car kind of skids to a stop, kind of like half sideways. And, you know, it feels kind of reckless to me, and that's kind of got the uh, the guys, the kind of sharpshooter in there, which I really yeah. like the sharpshooter character. I wish there would have been more of him in the film. No, I would agree with that. I liked him quite a bit. But this has nice little moments. I love the little race car lighter um, and the moment that uh, Goro slides the kind of like little race car lighter. I think it's a race car. It's like, it's like a little toy car, toy, toy, car, toy car lighter. <laughs> he slides to him, uh, and he lights his you know cigarette in the little bar there with the girl and stuff and you get the prostitutes and, and I'm not really familiar enough with this era of Japanese cinema and stuff. And I didn't know they got away with, you know, bare breasted shots and stuff. There is nudity in this film, which I was kind oh, of yeah. surprised by. I didn't know that. So I'm just like, I'm not well versed in this era so much. So, I mean, I know my Kurosawa's and Ozu's and things, but they didn't have a whole lot of, you know, tits popping this out. Is 1960. Place. It was unheard of in American film to see breasts. Yeah, and they, here they are. Not only do you see them, but at one point a girl takes an arrow right to the tit. I mean, right yeah. on the nipple. Right on the nipple bullseye. <laughs> bullseye, exactly. Yeah, so that was kind of, you know, a little shocking and kind of brought a little bit of uh, teeth to the thing. Although, later on when you kind of figure out who did the shooting and you kind of see that person doing shooting at some other point, you think, how the hell could they have done that because they can barely shoot it past the swimming pool. But uh, it is funny to see. Uh, oh, it and, is. You know, you know, there's some interesting bits and stuff, and I like the mystery of this film. I, I, I like it. I think it goes on a little. At 78 minutes, I think it still kind of goes on a little long. Uh, at one point, I'm like, "Come on, man! Look, can we just at least finally see Akiba?" And of course, 
it's a nice, pleasant surprise who occupies. Not a total surprise, but I got to say, I didn't see it coming. No, of course not. So I really, I'm just looking at my notes. One of my notes says arrow to the tit. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, there's another scene too, man, where you get a clown car scene. Have you ever seen so many people in a small car in your life? It's All insane. those girls. This insane amount of people in the car. And there's there's little silly moments like that. Some there's a moment where that girl's running away from uh, our lead Timon and stuff, and then of course she gets all the way away from him, and it just so happens the one piece of the guardrail or the kind of stand she's going to jump over, he's right there, and they kind of bump into each other. It's just silly stuff like that. But I think overall, this film is is. Uh, pretty good for what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be more noirish, and it does have those kind of Philip Marlowe type moments where Timon talks to himself in narration, mm-hmm. and and they're fine. Uh, I think, though, that some of the violence in the film, I mean, I'm not asking for it to be more violent, because I know this is 1960, but this does that kind of infamous kind of Japanese cinema thing of where they throw bullets at people. Where they, you know, they oh, shoot yeah. their guns and they're kind of like propelling them forward while they're doing it. No, I know it's true. <laughs> they love doing that back in the day, man. They just love doing <laughs> that. It's funny when you think about that, and then you think about Yakuza films now, because Yakuza films now they don't do that. I mean, it, they're very much it's fetishizing that gun a lot more, right? And back then, nobody was really fetishizing guns. They were just kind of using them as a tool. But nowadays, we kind of fetishize that. That did I say that right? Fettuccini that gun. So I you know, feel like. Sorry to cut you off. That um, um, Fukusaku was the first one to do it right and kind of down and dirty. <clears throat> you might be right. You might be correct. Although he worked for so long, he may have done it both ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he may have started out that way and may have been like, you know what? Fuck this. This isn't the way people actually shoot guns. That's the way people shoot fake guns. So um, I like. Uh, there's a scene in this film that I've always heard about. And I didn't know where it was going to pop up, but I had read and some people had told me that have seen this movie and stuff that there's a, a really cool scene with a tanker. And I'm not going to give it away because uh, it is a oh, yeah. cool scene, i got to say. I really enjoyed that scene. It builds tension nicely. I like that uh, they have to use uh, fire in a way to kind of trick the whole thing. I, I just think it's a really nice setup and a really nice scene, although I don't think that steering wheel was completely on the car. <laughs> You can see it kind of bouncing around the whole steering column and stuff when he's trying to straighten stuff out. But anyway, that's a really cool scene. Uh, that ended up working out totally differently than I thought it would because there were some characters that kind of went away that I was surprised went away. And and I really like uh, the back end, too. I like the there's a scene where he kind of walks up on a card game. Oh, yeah, really I know for sure. It's kind of great. Really I don't think that Suzuki could be um, the MVT for this for me, but I do got to say, I don't know who shot it because I didn't look, but mm-hmm. I got to say, man, the cinematography, and this film does look, it looks pretty good. I watched it on an HD rip on yeah, it does Blue Plus, and uh, I got to say, man, it looked really good. I watched it on a 60-inch television, and it looked uh, nice and crisp, and it was a pretty movie. It was purdy, as they say down here. It is a good-looking film, and that scene you mentioned it's fascinating both films this week kind of go for it with the finales, too. Yeah, they really do. I mean, we've got two guys in trench coats, two guys really going for it, uh, and tits. Propulsive. <laughs> yeah, propulsive tit movies. That's what we watched this week. Yeah? Despite the film, for me, feeling flat a little bit this one, it's still propulsive in a literal sense of our character 
It's just constantly going. Shigiyoshi Mine, or maybe Mine, Mine, Mine. Anyway, he shot most, he shot a lot of uh, Suzuki stuff. So it was a long-term relationship they had. I think when you get a filmmaker as specific aesthetically as Suzuki, it benefits him to find a, a kindred spirit aesthetically. Yeah, he shot Drifter and he shot uh, Gate of Flesh, I know. Mm. So, very interesting. And he shot the man with the hollow tip bullets. So, and of course this. So, I mean, he worked with him quite a bit. He shot a cold as my passport, which I know. Is that Suzuki? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, is it? Well, I don't think it is him. I think no. it's, uh, no, it's uh, Takashi Nomura. It's a good film, though. It's a good one. Yeah, I mean, you kind of talked about that kind of oh. off the air when we were picking these films. Yeah. We both like it. I don't know if it's as good as its title, but it is good. No. But yeah, that's all my notes. Okay. So. I feel yeah. like we're kind of short shrifting people this week, but I mean, hey, they got about 25 Ugo Bologna jokes. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You weigh that thing on the scale, and you know, yeah. that's a good price per kilo. Um, but Japan is really ahead of the curve. You know, I feel like Suzuki takes some of the tropes of noir and subverts them. Um, there's, instead of a lot of shadows, the film almost exclusively, and I would even say almost to its detriment, is primarily daytime. Yes. I feel like the film could have employed more shadows, more nighttime stuff to give it more of a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have liked to have seen it. I, I'm a big fan for film, films take place over the course of one night. Yes. Like this film could have done that, and it uh, it doesn't. Um, I've always been, and I've probably mentioned this every time it has it, but Japanese films and their relationship with jazz music, Hong Kong films, just they don't have the same level of um, of, of care put into them as far as the scores go. Right, but in a lot of these films, you know, you would see the imprint of a, of a filmmaker and their love of jazz. Uh, you get it in Suzuki films, you get it in Fukusaku films, and so many different kinds of Japanese films. Um, and I think that uh, it's fascinating to see Japan. This is 60, 1960. So what are we, 13 years? 13, 14, 15, 16 years removed from war. You know, so to see the alleyways and the shanty towns and... Um, you know, to see all that stuff, I'm always very curious. Like when we did Drunken Angel, the Kurosawa film. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. It's uh, it's like that when uh, you kind of see, you know, it's not to that point of dirt roads and what have you, but, you know, it's still interesting to see. Yeah, um, I like it too. It kind of brings a kind of a contemporary and interesting feel to that type of cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, so this was 15 years. My math was terrible. But it felt silly. Fifteen years after World War II. Um, I'll tell you that one girl on stage when he, when Timon first goes to that burlesque club. Jesus, yeah. she could move. She could. Man. And yeah, we get some nudity, which is, yeah. which is a you know pleasant surprise. And yeah, I rewound it. I was like, I rewound. I don't even know if that's a word, but I had to rewind it because I, I was like, man, did I just see nudity? Yeah, I did. one girl was shaking it, man. <laughs> and uh, I like that the camera's really playful at this point when it's with the girls. And I think that's one of the things that Suzuki, you know, he always has an eye, whether it's, you know, the people he works with or, um, you know, coming through himself. It's, uh, there's a real eye, a real eye in this film for, for, the, for the, the camera having um, a certain tone depending on what's happening on screen. Yes. Um, 
This is a really bizarre question. I think we've also mentioned this on the air. Were those toilet paper covers big in around your area in the 80s when it was like a knitted, like almost like a woman in a dress, and the dress went over the toilet paper rolls? Uh, not that I recall. There are these knitted things of like women and like like the bell of the ball, where like the dress <laughs> would cover the toilet paper. Well, very much like Victorian that. era women. Yeah, do not recall that. That was a big thing here, man. Just like the tea cozy, which I think we've talked. I'm pretty sure we've talked about the tea cozy on the air, which is like a right. a toque for your your teapot. Yes, I know. I, I am familiar with those. Yeah. Uh, what does I get? Oh man. <laughs> That arm bar to make her drink. Yes. It's that one scene where the one chick, man, he wants her to drink. Puts her in a fucking arm bar. Drops that arm bar. Yeah, man. As uh, I say in Buffalo, arm bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get the arrow to the titty we talked about. Um, again, noir. You get a lot of diners in this. It's a tea house. Yes. I like seeing the geographical stamps put on films. Um... You know what I love is the one scene, it's, it's again, it's a very playful moment, but I love the scene with the jukebox and the horns when Timon stumbles onto the, the gang of girls around the jukebox and it's kind of doo-woppy music. Do you know that scene? Oh, we lost Sammy. Yes. Yeah, I like that scene a lot, too. Yeah. Oh, Lee. You're going to be... Who's can the, you hear the, me? The, the yeah, the dungeon master's no, I'm here. I'm here. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me okay? <laughs> can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you fine. You can hear me? Yeah, still? I can hear you. You hear me? Yes. Maybe I shouldn't have left the area I was in. Yeah, I can still hear you. <laughs> okay, good. It sounds like there's a delay. I'm going to say one. Yes, and then I, I can hear you. <laughs> I'm going to say one. I want you to say one right after me. One. One. Ooh, there's a delay of about three seconds. <laughs> we'll just go ahead and finish your part of the review, and then we'll, uh, we're almost done. Anyway. We're almost done here. So another week, another CB radio using Hero. Yes. Which is outstanding. Uh, I already, already said I wish there was more nighttime. And, um, I, just, I think that one of the things that Suzuki does well with this film is his heroes always seem to be restless men with psychological hang-ups or just a determination to just keep moving uh, no matter what. And, and we get that with Timon here. He's very much a working-class hero. He's intelligent, but he's not overly intelligent. Um, so I think that's always very fascinating to see. Uh, it's interesting to see Suzuki work in black and white. I don't think he employs black and white and the aesthetic of the genre as well as he could uh, yeah. in comparison to some of his color films. Mm-hmm. You know, it still is okay. Uh, it's edited rather well. I'll say that for it. You know, I quite like how it's edited. Uh, there's a few moments, and he this would be more prevalent in Suzuki's later work, but kind of slightly surrealistic, kind of lynchy uh, stuff that's going on at times towards the back end of the film. Um, there's a, a henchman, just to jump around here, there's a henchman that he's got to be the henchman that gives in in the shortest amount of time with the most mediocre form of torture in the history of cinema. He gets his arm gently squeezed in a piano key lid and he gives up all the goods. (laughs) That guy's weak. Um, So the set piece at the back end you already talked about with the the gasoline. 
it's like so it's reminiscent of Sorcerer. I wish we had have had much like with Cipriani scoring Nightmare City. I wish this film was scored a little more actively. I think it would have lent itself well to the film. Uh, I do love some of the shots at the back end, the sunglasses and the train yard. And like train yards are always very symbolic and very cinematic. You know, I think they work quite well. And there's a sort of a kind of it's not really the same thing if you think about the two films, but a little bit reminiscent of Chinatown in terms of. Uh, familial dynamics, I guess. Right. Uh, and yeah, those are all my notes. We're, we're good to go. All right. Before we lose connection and all kinds of other chaos, um, my MVT for this, I'll go with, uh, uh, I'll go with, I'll go with the cinematography. I can't remember what his name was, but I'll go with that. <laughs> Because I, I really like it. I like it. I like the location a lot. Shigeyoshi Mine. There you go. Mine. There we go. I, or we say down here in Kentucky, uh, Shigemoshi Mine. That's right. <laughs> so, um, also, uh, I go make a break. I'm going to go with, I really like that tanker scene. I really do. So, I've really, I mean, somebody told me about that, and I'm glad they did, but it didn't, I didn't expect what I saw. So, they didn't tell me everything about it. So, I quite enjoyed that. My score for this film. I'm going to go 7 out of 10. I think it's a good, solid, kind of a very short noir piece. And I really, I kind of enjoyed it. I really did. Nice. My make or break is totally to left field. I love the scene when he comes across the gang of duopy girls around the, um, around the jukebox. I wish it had a, he had have made a film that was sort of like Daisy's, the Czech New Wave film we covered. I think he does have a knack for interesting females as much as he has for sexually crippled males uh, in other films of his uh, are just kind of males with some emotional stunting. Uh, My MVT is the style of the film. It is a very stylistic film and uh, especially for its time, you know, it's, it's one thing that Stuggy's always known for. And I think his reputation is well-deserved in that sense. He doesn't make stylish film. My score is just a little bit lower than yours. It is a 6.75 out of 10 good film, not a great film. It's, um, but for the price you get in that box, I think you get five films for sixty bucks, so it's a pretty good deal. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's it. Now next week, the big one, three hundred. Yeah. Three hundred episodes. Uh, three hundred episodes. We are going to have a guest on with us. Yeah. A guest has been uh, carrying the blog on his back for many a year now. He's been a, a gatekeeper at <laughs> the um, at the group itself. He's uh, one of us, one of our dear friends. We have the pleasure to drink this man's beer, literally. Yes. Um, and ah. to uh, to eat with him. And this is, of course, Todd. Todd yes, C. The, the great Todd. The great, yes. the king of Sparta since it's episode 300. Yes, exactly. So Todd Leonidas. Todd Leonidas is going to lead us uh, <laughs> on a journey uh, through a trilogy where there are schoolgirls, and those schoolgirls are in peril. And that is the Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy, including nice. what have they done to Solange, what have they done to your daughters, and uh, Rings of Fear. So it's going to be a great episode. Uh, we've been trying to get these films on forever and ever and ever, and I cannot wait to finally talk about them. Solange, full disclosure, my favorite giallo of all time. Yeah, nice, nice. I've never... Uh 
do you know that I have never seen any one of these three films? Oh man, I can't wait. It's cool, man. We get the return of. I'm not, actually, I'm not going to tell you nothing. Some yeah. the return of some GGTMC favorites. Yes, including one you're probably not thinking of because you haven't seen them yet. But it's going to be cool to see them. Well, I know Testy's in there. Yeah, Testy's in there. But there's another one. Yeah, I know. I haven't really looked at the credits or anything yet. No, so these are three films that I've always kind of known about, but never really uh, ventured on. And then I remember you back when we started this, saying we should do it at some point in time. And I remember thinking, well, I'm just going to hold off. I'm just going to hold off and wait. And then here we are, six years later, almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because this, this trilogy has come up several times on these on the on the big episodes. I'm like, you know, 150 or 200 or 250. We've talked about doing this trilogy for a long time. We have, but then we did Mad Max, we did Dollars, we did Death Wish. You know, we yeah. had a lot of other ones, so. Well, good no, stuff. but it was a matter of time before we got to them, you know. It'll be fun, though. It'll be fun. And it'll be great to have Todd on. I haven't talked to him in a while. Yeah, it'll be fantastic. So with that, uh, I want to tell you to enjoy uh, your time uh, in your white linen suit. Yes. On vacation. Going to go down and get, uh, gonna get those uh, little tan line on the Edison twins. Amazing. Amazing, gonna come back with the bleach. The the twins are gonna be bleach blonde, nice tan lines. Yeah. No tan lines anywhere else. Yes, exactly. Inexplicably, uh, so that's amazing. But uh, all right, uh, I think we have one thing left to say, uh, and that is adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at two zero six. 666-5207 and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com